morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6. Be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 23. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If, if you don't have your Bible with you, certainly use the text printed in the bulletin. 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perazuzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all his house, all the house of Israel, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your, in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is God's word. Let's pray as we consider it together. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you have not left us as orphans in this world, but you've given us your church, you've given us your word, you've given us your spirit. 
Lord, we pray that in your church this morning, your word would be, would be preached. Uh, that by your spirit, it would be taught to us. By your spirit, it would be applied to us. That, Lord, you would show us Jesus and our need for him this morning. Lord, we pray you would feed us from your hand. For you are our great shepherd. And we are the sheep of your pasture. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. I used to enjoy parades until I started living in Louisiana. It was beat out of me. Mardi Gras is a, is a real thing. And of course, that, that season has just passed with the coming of Ash Wednesday recently. But it couldn't help me to think about having a worship service just like this in a, in a church building in, in an historic downtown home of Louisiana, right on Barrow Street. Uh, and as I'm preaching or leading worship, uh, a bus just drives by full of, of, of men who've, who've, who've already been lubed up a little bit. Uh, way too early to drink, but that didn't stop them. And music blaring, and, and that wasn't even the parade. That was just the, the warm-up. Uh, and then and every day there would be at least one, if not two, parades. And people would, would, uh, would oftentimes uh, set out their, their, uh, their places to sit. And, and uh, with the church property, we would actually have to put a, a fence around the church property to protect it. Uh, we put out a porta potty uh, for the public to use. I'll just let you think about that for a minute. Um, it, it, was, it was really uh, very much a part of their culture in part that I just don't have, have no part in wanting to celebrate. Um, and so, uh, so I was reading this this, uh, this week, and this is, this is a story about a parade. Pretty unique parade. Uh, one that kind of stops in the middle of it because of a death, uh, and then it continues on. Uh, the, the title of the sermon comes from a chapter in Dale Ralph Davis's book, and I think it's just, it's, it, it, his title is better than any I can come up with, The Terror and Ecstasy of God. You see why God is to be feared, and why God has to be enjoyed in the very same passage, this one. So let's look at it together. If you're taking notes, I'm going to break this up into three parts. God's presence brings fear in verses 1 through 9. God's presence leads, leads to joy in verses 10 through 15 and verses 17 through 19. And God's presence leads to criticism, verse 16 and 20 through 23. So first, let's look at God's presence brings fear. It brings fear. Look at me again uh, in chap chapter 6, beginning, beginning of verse 1. Uh, we see in this passage um, that David gathers, there's, there's, a, there's an army he gathers. And really what he's doing here is he's, he's, uh, he's, gathering, he's gathering people together for this parade. He wants to take the Ark of God, which has been parked in kind of a, a, a side city, this little city called Baal Judah. He wants to bring it to Jerusalem. Now, the, the Ark of God was not much more than a box, but it was a very sacred box. It was made to very specific standards. If you read the, the book of Numbers, as well as the, um, also the book of Exodus, excuse me. Uh, by moving the ark to Jerusalem, David really wants to declare that what he's, what, he's declaring what we already saw in the previous chapter. Right? In chapter 5, we looked at last week. David's kingdom, even the nation of Israel, is established by God. He owes his kingdom to God. God is the one who is the kingmaker, not, not, uh, not any other man. Um, so it's really hard for us, I think, to understand what, the, what the, this, this, uh, this ark was like. Um, it, was, it was a place that held the tablets of the law. It was a place where the priests celebrated the Day of Atonement. So whenever there was a, there was a Day of Atonement, whenever there were sacrifices given, it was done right in front of the ark. And there's kind of a sense in which this, this, was, this was where God was seen as, as, as his enthronement. Uh, if God had, a, had a, uh, a throne to sit on, 
the ark was his footstool, if you will. I, I was trying to think of something similar that, that, would, that would kind of make sense. The, most, the, the closest thing I could come up to is not even a religious symbol, but a, a, a patriotic symbol, the American flag. Right? There are very specific rules about flying the flag, about, about how you're supposed to, to take care of it, how you're supposed to fold it. If it's damaged, how you're supposed to dispose of it, and so on and so forth. Um, there are reasons why we do that, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're good reasons. Um, even much more so uh, was the ark of God to, this, to the uh, people of Israel. And so the, these first few verses talk about how, how they decided to transport it. It says in verse 3, they, they got a new cart uh, and, and, and brought, it out, uh, uh, brought it out. The problem is, is that that's not how it's supposed to be carried. Um, if you look at Numbers chapter 4, and I'm not going to read these, but if you look at verses 4 through 6, verse 15, verse 17 through 20, uh, you can look at those on, on your own at home. Uh, basically, the rules were no touch, no look, no cart. Uh, they, they weren't supposed to look inside the box, the, in, in, inside the cart, in the ark, the ark itself. They're supposed to cover it, and they're supposed to use poles uh, to carry it on, on the shoulders of the priests, who are not supposed to touch it at all. Um, and so now you have a context of what's happening uh, with Uzzah, right? Because in verse 5, the parade starts. Everything's sounding good, right? You've got, you got this band similar probably to the one we have here. Uh, castanets, tambourines, uh, all, all kinds of things. And then Uzzah does what you would expect anyone to do. Uh, the ark starts to take a tumble. So what does he do? He, he straightens it out. And when he touches it, in verse 7, it says, The Lord's anger was kindled against him, and he struck him down, and he died. So you have a parade celebrating the new regime, moving to the new capital city, celebrating the new king, the new, this, this great God, and what I call a ticking time bomb of holiness. And so Uzzah's death is not, is, not, um, is not now less arbitrary. It's much less arbitrary. In other words, if you know, if you know that he wasn't supposed to be carting it in the first place, uh, it's not surprising what happens. But his death is still more tragic. Uzzah should have known better. David certainly should have known better. And this is, again, this, this sense with David, the one that, that kind of gnaws at me is that he, he thinks the rules, he seems that most of the rules, all the rules apply to everyone, but to David, he seems to always think that maybe there's one or two rules that don't apply to him, right? He can have as many foreign wives as he wants, right? We talked about that in chapter five. Here he seems like he can transport the ark of God however he wants, and it costs Uzzah his life. Does this picture of God kindle your anger, I wonder? I mean, is it fair? I mean, doesn't God owe Uzzah a trial, maybe a warning? Maybe two warnings? Maybe this isn't about Uzzah at all. But maybe this picture is a warning to us, to David, to Israel, to us generations later. We must not act casually towards such a holy and awesome God. Right? God is to be worshipped. He's to be glorified. He's to be known. We sang about knowing you. So there's a sense of intimacy with God. But he's still holy. He is still completely unlike us. We're the creatures and he is the creator. Um, he is completely above us. And by the way, for those of you who think this is just an Old Testament thing, this is not a, just an Old Testament thing. You may know the story from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you don't, you're about to find out. So I'm going to read it to you. Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. Now this is the new church, right? That uh, was called uh, on the uh, day of Pentecost. And, 
and there's lots of love going on, lots of, lots of uh, receiving of donations and so on and so forth. It's a real time of growth for the church. Verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. That doesn't sound so bad. But, but they presented as if they had presented the whole price. I just went through a bunch of real estate this week, so this is very interesting to me. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So this is not just an Old Testament thing. But this is a New Testament thing, and it goes on. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. They didn't have cell phones in those days, so he couldn't, he couldn't text her. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon all the, the whole church and upon all who heard of all these things. That's God. Not just the God of the Old Testament. The God, it's, he's the same God. Same God. Now what's really interesting, if you, if you look at Acts, it's not like what happens after this is, is a bunch of bad things. The church continues to grow. People, there are miracles performed. There's a sense in which this, this fear of God fuels the growth of the church. And I'm wondering perhaps if, if God was trying to get the attention of David and his followers to make sure that, that they remembered who they were, who they were worshiping. Um, that he was not someone uh, simply just to have a casual relationship with. You can't just date God. <laughs> uh, you, have to, you have to worship him. You have to commit, commit your life to him. They're probably the one of the most overused and yet most appropriate illustrations I could find about this comes from C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You all have heard this probably several times. Where the character Lucy is describing Aslan, who's the, who's the, uh, the uh, type of, of God, says, he isn't safe then. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Didn't, don't you hear Mr. Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. So God is not safe, but he is good. If you've committed your life to him, he is on your side. God's presence brings fear. And fear is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It, remi it reminds us of where our place is in the relationship. Not only does it bring fear, but God's presence leads to joy. It leads to joy. So at the, at, the end of, at the end of the last section, verse 9, it says, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. He says, parade's over, we're done. I'm going to stop, because uh, I, can't, I can't deal with this. And what's funny is David leaves this, uh, this ark, leaves the ark in the, in, the, in the home of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now, none of you who know who Obed-Edom the Gittite was, neither do I. But a Gittite was someone who was from Gath. And Gath is where Goliath is from. 
So God blessed this, this, uh, this foreigner who was living in Israel. Uh, he, he blessed this, if you will, cousin of Goliath. Uh, it says for three months. We don't know how, how he blessed him, but I'm sure there was all kinds of great things that happened. And so uh, in verse 12, David hears the news. And so he, he, they, they decide to, to resume the parade. And so, they, and so after three months, the parade continues. And this time, David leads the people in joyful, almost self-forgetting worship. <laughs> notice, look, also notice how very careful they're being here. It says, verse, th- verse 13, it says, When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened, can- a fattened animal. This must have been a long parade, taking a very long time. But David is, uh, is, is leading the people. And because one of his priests already died, he feels the need to kind of take, take over. And so he, he's the one who's offering sacrifices. He's the one that's, that, that's wearing the priestly uh, linen ephod. Um, and he's kind of forgetting himself. There's a self-forgetfulness. There's a, there's a humility about David. So when David danced before the Lord with all his might, that's a humility. That's a human, or excuse me, a humble thing to do. He wasn't doing it to grab attention. He was doing it uh, because he thought the Lord deserved the vigor. And so, you know, at a time when kings kind of sat back and didn't do these kinds of things, David was not afraid to get his, to get his fingers dirty, or yeah, to get the fingernails, the dirt under the fingernails, so to speak. Four times in this text, verse 5, verse 14, 16, and 21, uh, uh, the worship is described before the Lord. That's what makes it good, is that all this is done before the Lord. All the dancing, all the, all the instrument blowing, all the shouting. And then at the end of the parade, this is pretty cool. This never happens at Mardi Gras. They throw beads. David feeds the crowds. He gives them a significant meal and sends them back to their homes. So what are we supposed to do with this? We have kind of the first nine verses that talk about God, the fear of God, the holiness of God. And then the next few verses that we just, we just read uh, describe kind of a joy, kind of a, almost a charismatic feel to, to the worship. Well, maybe that should tell us that our worship ought to be reverence, ought to be reverent, but also sweetened with joy. Or maybe it should be joyful, sweetened with reverence. Take your pick. Either way, I'm good. But our worship should engage our minds, but also should engage our affections, our, should, our touch, should touch our hearts. Not, not one without the other, both and. Um, I think particularly as Presbyterians, we're probably more apt to, have, to be a little colder in our worship uh, and to be a little more, um, to be a little more um, um, yeah, cold is a good word. Um, last night, Carrie and I happened to be with 15,409 uh, fellow fans of the New Mexico Lobos when they played the San Diego State Aztecs. If you don't know what happened, it was too sad to tell you. Obviously, the home team did not win, but it was loud. People wore all kinds of crazy uh, paraphernalia. They were into it. They had, they had obviously prepared. They knew the players for San Diego State. They knew who, who to boo and how to boo them and, and all those kinds of things and how to cheer for the Lobos and those kinds of things. And I'm not asking us to come to church with Christian paraphernalia and all kinds of, this is not a pep rally for God. But how many of us even took five minutes perhaps this morning to pray or took five minutes to listen to a favorite hymn or took five minutes um, to gather your family together and, and, and to pray together. 
Some of you I know have small children, and that's really hard to do. Uh, you get a pass for me on that, okay? Um, but for the rest of us, um, prepare to come to worship. And if you know the songs ahead of time, and forgive me for being so late to sending out, sending out the order of worship this morning instead of last night, um, but if you know the music ahead of time, it really helps to be able to sing it. Um, so come prepared to worship the Lord, joyful, reverent, and those things go together. It's not half and half. I think it's both and. It's 100% joyful, 100% reverent. And so David brings the ark of God to Jerusalem. He makes David's city the city of God. But not everyone was happy to see this festal celebration. That leads us to our third point this morning. God's presence leads to criticism. I'm going to read these verses. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, that is David's wife, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Well, it doesn't take long for us to, to find out what's on her heart. Verse 20. David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and by the way, this is interesting, there is sarcasm in the Bible. Here it is. How the king of, uh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. No, she doesn't say she's offended. She's passive aggressive, passive aggressive and sarcastic, right? She says, you honored yourself. But really, she means he dishonored himself. She says, the female servants were really, really, were really upset about this. She is the female servants. I learned a long time ago, in a, there's an old joke in the church that if you ever have lunch with somebody and that, and that, and that, and that person says, now, pastor, there's a group of, group of people that's upset with you and I wanna, I'm, I'm their spokesperson. Well, the group of people that are upset with you are the one, is the one that's having lunch with you across the, across the table. Same, same here. It's Michal who's upset. It's Michal who, who, uh, who thinks David is not being um, appropriate. And you almost wonder if, 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 in, if in parentheses she's saying, if my father were still alive and he were king, he would never have done such a thing. But David calls her out, verse, verse 21. And notice he says, he doesn't say, look at the reason he gives. Four, five words. It was before the Lord. This wasn't for you. This wasn't for the female servants. This wasn't for anyone else. This was for the Lord. Who, by the way, chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. I'll make merry before him. I'll make myself yet even more contemptible than this. I'll be abased in your eyes. In other words, you're not going to change me. By the way, if you're, if you're thinking about getting married anytime soon, you will never change the person that you're married to. They will change, but you will never do it. So don't think you can. Um, it says, by the, but, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken for them, I shall be held in honor. And verse 23 is just a sad note that Michal, the, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. Does that mean David kind of left her alone? Maybe they were never intimate again? Maybe God didn't open her womb? We don't know. But it's definitely a judgment on her uh, that she does not have children. Um, because of how she reacted here. A God-oriented life will always bring critics. Think about how many times Jesus was criticized by the religious leaders of his day for being zealous without following their rules. Right? If you look at Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 28, for example, 
Jesus is criticized first what, for eating with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. He's, he's criticized for not fasting. So he gets criticized for eating with the wrong people. Then he gets criticized for eating at all. Then he gets criticized for not following the Sabbath. But the key is verse 22. Jesus says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so what we have here is a new wineskin. We have new wine for fresh wineskins. We have a new kingdom that's being established. It's God's kingdom that he's brought through his servant David. The old kingdom of Saul is over. Its remnants are fading fast. How much more then should we remember that our Christian living should reflect the kingdom of God that Jesus himself inaugurated with his life, death and resurrection. And those who trumpet the values of this world are ambassadors of a kingdom headed for certain destruction. As Ronald Reagan once said, soon to be on the ash heap of history. Right? The kingdom of this world uh, is, is, going to, is, is coming and going. But God's kingdom will last forever. So don't be afraid uh, to live, to live and, and to proclaim that kingdom. So just a few thoughts as we finish up this morning. First, where's Jesus in this passage? He obviously fulfills the Ark of the Covenant. He is the presence of God. He fulfills the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And you see the latter two here are, are depicted by David. And of course, he is the prophet who is the very word of God, the final word. David offers sacrifices, but it is by sacrificing his own life that Jesus purchases our, our salvation. David leads the people in festive worship. Jesus is our singing Savior. Ed, Edmund Clowney points this out in, 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 in some thoughts. He said, when, where Christ comes, song comes. For in Jesus Christ is a singing Savior. Hebrews 2.12 says, I will declare thy name unto my brother, brethren. In the midst of the, of the congregation will I sing their praise. And so he go, Clowney goes on to point out to how Jesus is the singing victor of the Psalms. He's the son in Psalm 2, verse 7, who's seated at God's right hand, says Psalm 110, verse 1. He is at, one the righteous, he is at once the righteous man who ascends into the hills of the Lord, from Psalm 24, and the king of glory for whom the everlasting gates are thrown open. When Jesus sang the Passover Psalms in the upper room with Simon Peter and James and John, his father heard and all heaven listened. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation, Psalm 118. The song of Moses and of the prophets became the song of the Lamb. Even the angel's song in the fields of Bethlehem cannot compare with the song of the sin bearer. That's Edmund Clowney. You ever thought about that, that Jesus sung the Psalms? He sung the very words that you can read every day. He leads our worship. He is the singing Savior. And speaking of worship, our worship, as I said earlier, should be both reverent and joyful. The God who struck down Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira is the same God who received David shouting and dancing. We ought to worship before the Lord because he is worthy and his kingdom shall have no end. Worship matters to the church. Dale Ralph Davis has a very good paragraph about this I want to read to you. He says, do you see what 2 Samuel 6 is saying to God's people in the wake of 2 Samuel 5? It is not saying that whipping Jebusites and Philistines doesn't matter but it does imply that God's people are not sustained merely by crises. They do not thrive by knocking off Philistines but by seeking God's face. The evangelical church easily loses sight of this. We can always dredge up more adrenaline because of the latest moral or ethical or social or cultural or political emergency. Crises may stimulate us to action, but they do not sustain life. 
The church must never look to the latest cause for her life. We cannot ignore the enemies outside the city of God, but we must not be absorbed by them. War must not efface worship. The real question is not who is against us, but who is among us. That's why I'm so down on culture wars, because we cannot win. If we win, we lose. If we lose, we lose. Either way, we lose. It's not culture wars that sustain us. It's not about us versus them. It's about seeking God's face and being self-forgetful. Worship matters to the church. So may the very presence of God given to us in Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit be at the very center of our lives as men and women, boys and girls, as families and as a church. And may the gospel of grace go forth from us and continue to proclaim Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. May God's presence, not in a tabernacle, but by the personage of the Holy Spirit, be at the center of our lives. And may that spirit lead us in worship and in evangelism and fellowship. Because there is a world outside that is so desperately needing of God's grace. Let's offer it. What, let's be beggars showing other beggars where to find great food. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for, again, one of these great Old Testament stories that terrify us, yet also encourage us. Lord, we thank you that you are both transcendent and near. That we can be intimate with you, Lord, uh, by, your, by your invitation. And yet we never forget, Lord, that you are holy, that you are otherly, different than us, that your ways are not our ways. So Lord, help us to hold those intention, to be reverent and yet joyful always before you. And may the worship, may our worship of you, both as a church and as people, be the fuel for the living, for the gospel living that we so desperately seek. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.